Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Welcome to another Fact Sheet Friday. This week, I'm going to start things off by talking about evidence-based practice. Here we go again, reviewing evidence-based practice. In order for pediatric physical therapists to provide effective intervention, we must be skilled at obtaining the best evidence available to inform our practice. So how do we do this? There are five general steps to integrate evidence-based practice into our lives. I'm going to first read through them. One is develop an answerable question. Two, find the best evidence via accessing good quality databases. Three, critically appraise the evidence. Four, integrate appraisal of the research, your own clinical expertise, and your specific patient circumstances. And five, evaluate outcomes. So let's talk about these a little more in detail. One, develop an answerable question. This is where the PICO format that we discussed in episode seven comes into play. Two, find the best evidence via accessing good quality databases. This is where the 6S pyramid comes into play. And you need to be familiar with this pyramid where computerized decision support systems is at top. Those are kind of rare. Followed by summaries like CPGs or textbooks. Followed by evidence-based journal abstracts systematic reviews, synopses of studies, and at the bottom, original journal articles. Three, critically appraise the evidence. What is the quality? Here, you need to be familiar with both the research design types and the levels of evidence, another pyramid to make sure you have in your memory. This pyramid has the CPGs at the top, followed by systematic reviews, the meta-analysis, the randomized control trials, outcome studies, cohort studies, case control studies, and case series are at the bottom. Make sure to review episode seven if you need, read this fact sheet, order Linda Fetter's book if you haven't done so yet. There are also critical appraisal tools you can use to help you appraise your evidence when you're reading it. They will give you cues on things to be looking for to determine the quality. Remember, Appraisals will be different depending on what the study is looking at. If it is a diagnostic study, we need to ask questions about validity, sensitivities, specificity, and likelihood ratios. In prognostic studies, we need to know how early they started to follow a patient and for how long. And on research articles, 
we're looking deep into the design and the sample sizes and the effect sizes. So this is important, and this is where Linda's book does a good job of breaking down each different type of article we might see and helping you understand that the way we appraise this changes depending on the question. The more you practice this, the better you will understand it. So don't wait until right before the test to get a really good handle on this information. In my experience, it's a slow burn and definitely needs time to really understand it. The next one four, we need to integrate appraisal of the research, our own clinical expertise, and our specific patient circumstances. And then we need to tie all of that stuff together. Last, number five, we're evaluating our outcomes. Examine your performance. What are the patient outcomes? Is what you're doing working? So that's a little snippet on evidence-based practice. Episode seven has a lot more. And Linda Fetter's book definitely goes really deep into all of this if you find yourself needing more. The next fact sheet, I think, was also a really, really important topic that I was not super familiar with going into my test year. So this fact sheet talks about team-based service delivery approaches. The team-based service delivery approaches are a hot topic, so make sure you check this one out. As PTs, we're almost always working in a team. The team-based approaches describe the different ways your team can interact with each other. The amount of communication and collaboration with other team members varies depending on the team approach being used. In the multidisciplinary approach, professionals work independently and the role of each team member is strictly defined. Everything is very separate in this approach. The team members may communicate with each other, but it's limited. I think we often use the term multidisciplinary to describe collaboration with other professions in our day-to-day -day language, but you really need to be familiar with these definitions because they're really specific and a little different from the way I had been using the terms in the past. I really had to relearn this information. An interdisciplinary team requires interaction among the team members for the evaluation, assessment, and development of the intervention plan. Role definitions are relaxed, and there's an emphasis on communication among team members. Goals can be developed by the team. Intervention services are typically provided during individual sessions with a provider and a child. However, providers sometimes perform co-visits or group interventions to facilitate coordination and communication among the team members. This approach has much more interaction among members, but it's still separate and individual in its direct treatment day-to-day -day approach. Each discipline still stays in their lane. In the transdisciplinary approach, team members work together on evaluations, goal development, and interventions. This approach calls for one team member to be the individual that the family interacts with on a regular basis. This provider implements the intervention plan and receives consultation from other providers. In most transdisciplinary approaches, the primary provider is based on the child and family's current needs and concerns, and this can change over time. The recommended and generally accepted approaches of teaming are interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary, but there's definitely a shift towards the recommendation and use of the transdisciplinary approach, especially in the early intervention setting. The next fact sheet is on child abuse and neglect. 
This fact sheet is extremely important. Not only is this something that you need to know for your exam, but also as a part of your responsibility as a physical therapist. We are mandated reporters. We need to be aware of the signs, symptoms, and risk factors for child abuse and neglect. In addition, we need to know our responsibilities for reporting, prevention, and how interventions may be affected. This fact sheet begins by going through definitions of child neglect and abuse, as well as some statistics and numbers on prevalence. It also describes the different types of child abuse, including sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, medical abuse, and other types of abuse. It then goes on to describe signs and symptoms for different types of abuse and neglect. This is definitely something important to take a look at, as there have definitely been questions on practice exams on recognizing abuse and neglect. According to the fact sheet, the general signs of abuse and neglect that seem to be shown in all types include, according to the fact sheet, the general signs of abuse and neglect that seem to be shown in all types include a child who is frightened at the sight of the parents or who cries when it is time to go home, sudden or unexplained difficulty sitting or walking, and injuries that do not match the given explanation of the injury or changing history of how the injury occurred. The fact sheet states that it is extremely important for clinicians to recognize the signs and symptoms of abuse and neglect. However, they should also take into account the child's cognitive, developmental, and emotional stage, as they could present with similar signs and symptoms. Child abuse and neglect can have lifelong impacts, so it is important to recognize the signs early on. The fact sheet also describes risk factors for neglect and abuse. There is a high prevalence of abuse and neglect in children with developmental disabilities, which increases the chances that as a physical therapist, we will see or hear signs of abuse and neglect. It is important to be familiar with your state's practice act as far as logistics of reporting go, but in general, know that physical therapists are mandated reporters and that we are required to report any signs of abuse and neglect accordingly. The fact sheet goes on to describe prevention strategies. These strategies include strategies to support families, suggestions on how healthcare practitioners can train and promote knowledge in this area to other healthcare practitioners and reduce the risk for abuse in schools and create policies that reduce risk. The next fact sheet is on understanding health disparities. Understanding health disparities provides basic information about health disparities and the importance of understanding these disparities for pediatric physical therapist practice. According to the fact sheet, the NIH defines health disparities as differences in the incidence, prevalence, mortality, and burden of diseases and other adverse health conditions that exist among specific population groups in the United States. The fact sheet states that disparities in access, insurance, and health outcomes persist in health domains across racial and ethnic groups. It also affects children across disability levels and socioeconomic status. Children with disabilities tend to be affected significantly by these health disparities. 
The fact sheet then goes on to explain about cultural competence. It is defined as the manner in which individuals and organizations behave or operate to promote better access and outcomes for all individuals. It also provides several tools to guide reflection specific to different practice settings. National efforts have been taken to address health disparities, including the Affordable Care Act and Healthy People. Both of these are also mentioned in the Campbell chapters. Lastly, the fact sheet explains how the APTA is addressing disparities in cultural competence in pediatric physical therapy practice and explains their operational plan of cultural competence. Overall, this fact sheet is relatively short and takes only about five minutes to read, but the information is important. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.